0: it's time to talk sci-fi and superheroes fantasy and horror it's time to talk movies tv books and games it's time to escape boring talk radio with the genie through the wormhole and into the geek universe and now a strange visitor from another planet with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men your host for geek universe jim yelton
1: Boys and girls and children of all ages, welcome to the Geek Universe. I am your host, Jim Yelton, and that voice at the top of the show was our robotic announcer, Rachel. We are coming to you live on tape this week from Geek Headquarters, high atop the Baxter Building in New York City. Our guest this week carved out a long career in television writing for quite a few major science fiction series of the 80s and 90s. Mark Scott Zekri took his love of the original Twilight Zone and literally wrote the book on Rod Serling's groundbreaking series with the Twilight Zone companion. He and his wife Elaine have taught and mentored students around the world, and after years spent honing his craft for major studios and networks, Mark was one of the first professionals to see that the future of filmmaking lay in the internet, Kickstarter, and fan supported films. I've been a big fan of Mark's work for years and I wanted to know where his love for science fiction began.
2: It was uh, slowly and surely things, uh, things uh, made it my, my genre of choice. Essentially what happened was that uh, when I was three, my parents divorced and my mom raised me. And, uh, and I think I had this need for escape. Uh, because of that event. And so from a very early age, from as early as I can remember, I, I, you know, the idea of going out into space and being on a spaceship was very appealing to me. It was sort of like that was as far as I could get from the event. And so I found science fiction very reassuring and, and very comforting. And um, my earliest memory of, of a favorite book was Farmer in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. That was my favorite book when I was seven. But even before then, I was watching TV and reading comic books and I, I loved you know, all the DC and Marvel stuff. And I, I would just buy comics voraciously. And I was reading science fiction books uh, voraciously as well. And then Twilight Zone and Star Trek and Outer Limits for me sort of came at the same, more or less the same time. And I was a huge fan of Star Trek. And well, all three of those shows are what, the shows that made me want to be a writer. And, and even before then, before Star Trek, I was watching Lost in Space. And in fact, I was homesick one day and decided to call the stars of Lost in Space. And I dialed numbers. I pulled out the phone book and started dialing uh, the names that were the same names as the actors. And of course, they were, for the most part, <laughs> they were the wrong names but I got one. There was one, there, was, there was one mummy mummy listed in the phone book and it was Bill Mummy's dad and his mom picked up the phone and I said is Billy there and she said hold on and Billy and Mummy came to the phone and I was so nervous all I could do was blurt out will you be my friend and hang up
0: <laughs> but then I called back.
2: But but then I, then I was ner- I was nervy enough to call back, and uh, when, as soon as I was well, uh, my mom took me over to his house, and we traded comic books. So I've known Bill, M- and we of course Bill Mooney M- M- was in Babylon Five, which I wrote for, and, and he's just in Space Command, which is the, the project I'm doing now. And so so I, I've known him ever since I was seven. Because that's pretty amazing. But uh, but I think Star Trek was the real the real show that made me decide to become a writer-producer working in TV. I read read The Making of Star Trek when I was 13, that book, and it was the first book I ever read about how TV shows were made, and I think that's really what planted the seed of what is something I'd like to do with my life.
1: It's funny that you said that because I was in the same boat, although you probably read like the first edition of The Making of Star Trek, and I read a later paperback edition, but it it Uh, was exactly that. It was the first time that I can remember, I mean, not only was it Star Trek, so I was immensely interested in it, but it was the inner workings of the TV show. And yes. it was just amazing to me to kind of have that opened up and not just because it was Star Trek, but how TV actually works and how they wrote episodes and how they put it all together. It was just amazing.
2: Yeah, it, it really was a peek behind the curtain. And, uh, and I was also lucky enough to be given a, a trip to the original, uh, a visit to the original Star Trek set when the show was shooting. And I was on the set for the last episode ever shot, uh, Turnabout Intruder. So that was, again, just a, a wonderful experience. You
1: decided that you were going to become a writer professionally. What was yes. the first? What was the first thing that you worked on?
2: Uh, the first thing I worked on. Well, my first um, professional exposure to the world was when I was 18, I wrote a radio play called Lobotomy, but it was a satire of science fiction conventions and science fiction TV shows and movies. And that aired on KPFK, which was the local Pacific uh, affiliate mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles. And they, they had a radio show called Hour 25 that was a science fiction oriented show. So I, I wrote and directed and acted in that. And uh, But then my first professional sale was when I was 19, I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, which was the leading science fiction writing workshop in the country. And uh, Damon Knight was one of the, uh, the teachers. They, each week it was a different famous science fiction writer teaching 25 of us at Michigan State University, and Damon, who wrote uh, To Serve Man, the short story To Serve Man, that was made into a great Twilight Zone episode. He was editing an anthology, and he read a story I'd written when I was 18, and he bought it for the anthology. So uh, so that was really my first professional sale. And then uh, right out of college, I started writing The Twilight Zone companion, and by the time I was 22 or 23, I was writing for television. So it was, I was pretty fast out of the gate.
1: You did a lot early on working in animation.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right.
1: So I That's want to pick right. your brain a little bit because I've been talking to people lately. I mean, I'm sure you know this uh, a couple of weeks ago as we're recording this was like the last Saturday morning that there was any sort of animation on network TV. Mm-hmm. Does that make you a little bit sad to think about that, that there's no animation on Saturday mornings for kids on network TV anymore?
2: It's, well, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. I mean, I remember as a kid waking up and you know, often you'd, you'd be awake before your parents were awake and you'd be in your pajamas and you'd watch all these wonderful animated shows. And they, they were like, like friends. You you know, Rocky, Rocky the Flying Squirrel, and Bolinko, and Bugs Bunny, and all of these different characters were like personal friends. I have a great warm, warm spot in my heart for them. But, but you know, it's, it's a constantly changing world, and so kids now can find whatever they want on the internet or on, on Netflix. So you know, it's, a, it's just a different world, and you have to recognize that there'll always be that relationship between the viewer and the show of great connection. And and however that's delivered, you know, I'm I mean, I'm I am i I'm not someone who holds on to the past and says, Oh, it's such a shame that things are changing. I I, I embrace change, and and I like it.
1: When you started working in TV, did you gravitate naturally towards more science fiction and fantasy oriented projects, or were you kind of like yeah. open up to just working in whatever you could?
2: Well, no, not at all. It was, uh, I gravitated, my, my career basically consisted of, in television specifically, consisted of two different things. I wrote a lot of science fiction and horror and fantasy, and I also wrote a lot about my very strange family. So I actually did four pilots for three different networks about my family. I, I sold a screenplay about uh, something that happened in my family when I was a teenager. I was a commentator on Morning Edition telling stories about my family. So so both, but mainly the focus was science fiction and fantasy and horror and and the the irony, the interesting thing was I never actually wanted to be an animation writer. That wasn't one of my ambitions. I wasn't someone who grew up loving the Disney films and wanting to write them or any of that kind of thing. What happened was I was an art student at UCLA and Theodore Sturgeon, the great science fiction writer, was teaching a class in the adult education courses and as an undergraduate I was forbidden to take those classes but Ted Sturgeon was one of my heroes. He'd written for Star Trek and he was a great novelist and short story writer and I wasn't going to lose that opportunity so I took his class and his teaching assistant was a young writer named Michael Reeves and uh, Michael had just come out of Clarion a couple years before I did and uh, and Michael was writing animation and we became friends and at one point he was writing all of the episodes of a show called Space Stars that had Space Ghost in it and he asked if I'd like to write one with him and I said sure and then after that we wrote Smurfs and then it was obvious very early on that I could write them on my own and then I became the god of animation writing for all these animated shows so I learned my craft in animation but it wasn't ever a particular ambition and though. uh my ambition was to be on sort of like Star Trek and, and, and Twilight Zones and so forth. So then, as soon as I, I could, I wrote a, a live action spec, and that got me into it. sold, and that got me hired to do a pilot for uh, NBC, a, a live action pilot, and that got made and it aired, and I was off and running.
1: Well, and animation had to have been a really good place to start for somebody like you just to learn the craft because you're churning out so much product on a regular basis, right?
2: Yes. I mean, the great thing about animation, and it's, it's ironic because at that point there were only three networks, but there's still a lot of shows. Yeah. and. Uh, uh, and I, I had a great facility and and I would write very very quickly it, it's very funny one of my friends uh, years ago I had a job as a temp at one of the animation studios this is you know long long ago and she got to type up the in-house list on each of the writers the prospective writers they were hiring. and she told me what was next to my name and what it said next to my name was very good incredibly fast <laughs> 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 so uh, so that was work so yes yeah, so you could actually write it was almost like um, in the old days of radio where writers and, and actors would go from show to show to show to show and the way it would work: uh, one week I might be writing for Smurf, another week I might be writing for Super Friends, another week it might be Black Star. You know, we, we juggled between different shows and different companies. So, so simultaneously, I might be writing for Hannah Barbera and Deke and Ruby Spears and so on. You know, it was it was it was wonderful to be a freelancer. You could you could, and the money was very good for that time because I was at the top of the of this of the heap, and so I was being paid triple what what most writers were being paid, which was terrific. It was it was again, a, a, the best of all possible worlds as a as a, as a learning ground.
1: When we get into the eighties you were in a good position because that was when there was like really a science fiction resurgence on TV. And yes. Star Trek came back, you had Babylon Five startup. Were you excited when you started seeing those opportunities come back for oh, yes. live it, action science it, it, fiction?
2: Yeah, very much so. And you know it wasn't that I didn't like my animation. I enjoyed it. It was very fun. I always I always put my heart into everything I did. So whether it was Black Star or or even you know Puppy's further adventures or any of these different shows, someone was was asking when I was writing animation if I wrote for the for the ch- the children in the audience, and I said no, I write for the child in myself. So I was always looking to entertain myself. But when when Star Trek: The Next Generation came back, and you know, when when Star Trek: The Next Generation was greenlit and so forth, I couldn't wait to go in to pitch. And the funny thing was, the first uh, couple of seasons on, on Next Gen were very tumultuous. And uh, well, what would happen over and over is I would go in and pitch to a producer who would then want to buy one or two of the stories at least, and they'd be fired before they could. And so that happened with Tracy Torme and David Gerald and Burt Armis <laughs> and on and on. And finally, it was, i think the third season or something before i sold something to next gen but but it was um, it was funny it was funny how that worked
1: hey gang this week's show is sponsored by the now right writing guide series from Tarcher penguin now write science fiction fantasy and horror is the latest book in the popular now write series and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest, or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ransby Campbell, John Skip, Joe R. Lansdale, David Brin, Vonda McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror as a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. You know, I always tell everybody when I do a workshop or I teach one of my screenwriting classes that when I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing. And you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods, like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to jumpstart your writing. So make sure to check it out. It's Now Write: Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It's available on most Barnes & Noble stores on Amazon.com and directly from their website at NowWrite.net. Coming up, I get a chance to find out the behind-the-scenes story about one of my all-time favorite episodes of any Star Trek series, find out which episode is my favorite, and more with our guest, Mark Scott Zekri. I'm Jim Yelton, and you're listening to Geek Universe.
0: You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 geek.
1: Hey gang, thanks for listening to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton. And this week, we are bringing you a great chat that we had with Mark Scott Zekry. If you're interested in finding out about Mark's past, present, and future projects, you can check out his website. It's markzekry.com. That's M-A-R-C-Z-I-C-R-E-E.com. We'll also have a link at our website, which is midnight-entertainment.com. And you know, in the mid-'80s, Star Trek The Next Generation kicked off a resurgence of science fiction on television, and Mark had a front-row seat
2: I was um, story editing Friday the 13th series at Paramount. And so even before they uh, aired Next Gen, I was aware of the show. And in fact, the entire cast would have lunch in the executive dining room where I ate lunch. And so and they'd be in costume and makeup, laughing, and they seemed very friendly with each other. And the funny thing is I remember one time I was having lunch and Jonathan Flakes got up from the table in full Star Trek uniform. And he was walking, probably going to the men's room or something. And he was noticing that everyone's eyes were on him. And he walked right into a pillar. <laughs> <laughs> That's so a great, that's a great sight gag. So I started pitching the track and the way I would do it was I would usually, first of all, I would be aware of every episode they'd done. I'd watch every episode. Uh, I would also, when I was going to the pitch, I would say, okay, give me some notion of what you're working on, what you're, what's in development. And, I, and I, I, you know, are you doing time travel? What are you? I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to repeat something they were already working on. And I would I would basically carve out a whole week to work up ideas. And so the first day I might work up, I would just write down everything I could imagine. Initially, I would try to generate about 100 ideas, just spitballing everything and anything. And then the next several days, I'd start refining them and seeing what might join up where where you'd have two little threads and maybe the, together you'd start to be making a sweater. And then I, at the end of the process, I would have maybe six fully worked out storylines, beginning, middle, and end, and then maybe a few paragraphs, maybe 20 paragraphs of other less worked out stories, and then maybe a few one-liners. You know, I'd have a batch of material, but but if I, I would always try and start with character. I'd try, try and start with, I, I'd say, okay, who's the viewpoint character? Which character am I writing about? Is it a Geordie story? Is it a, a data story? You know, what's going to show something I haven't seen before. What, and I would try and have it be something that was meaningful to me emotionally. And then you, then I just would practice a lot before going in. So I would have, I would never read, off, I would have it fully written out, but I, would, I wouldn't I would read off page. I might have little notes, like a little mnemonic where it'd be like a, a phrase or two to keep me on track in terms of how the story went. And then I would just go in and I'd, I'd pitch and I would always be pitching to the producers. And uh, so often it would be to Michael Pillar. In fact, usually when I would pitch, it would be Mark, Michael Pillar and the entire writing staff. So Ron Moore, Ira Bear, you know, Brandon Draga, everybody. So that. That's how, how that worked. Because first of all, they knew my credits, and they knew who I was, and they'd all read The Twilight Zone Companion. In fact, many of them had read The Twilight Zone Companion as teenagers, and it was the thing that convinced them to become writer-producers in TV, just like me with the making right. of Star Trek. they had had that same light bulb moment with my book. Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's how that worked. And so I was I would put in a lot of work on it, and that's basically how I pitched to every show, whether it was Forever Night. If I was a freelancer, you know, this was back in a period where you had writing staffs, but you also had freelance scripts. So for instance, when I was a producer on uh, Sliders, we had a 22 episode order that season and uh, but 11 of those would be freelance now that doesn't exist anymore at all um, most episodes are written in house there really isn't a freelance market anymore which is a shame because it's much harder to break into television now than uh, a few decades ago But but so that's how so if I was a freelancer I would work up the pitches in that way if I was on staff I would be totally different I would just kind of start noodling up, up ideas and but I would be much more on the, on the inside in terms of okay this is what we want to do or this is how we're developing the series so for instance on Sliders I was sort of very and about 19 of those 22 episodes, whether I was writing them or outlining them or coming up with the initial motion or, or whatever, I was very, very hands-on that season.
1: Now, you actually had a hand in probably – it's in the top three of my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes because you, you have story credit for Far Beyond the Stars. And yes. that was just an amazing episode, and it was amazing – because of how the cast handled the material and and how the episode turned out. But the story premise of that episode was so different from anything that I can think of having seen up to that point on any of the Star Trek shows. And it just blew me away that they were willing to take that chance of telling that kind of a story where you have the basic premise of your entire show might just be a figment of somebody's imagination and and how you played with that. So were you happy when you saw the end result of that episode?
2: Very much so. And let me tell you how that, how that came about because generally when I was writing on shows, uh, I would be the one writing the script. This is, you know, 99, 0.9% 0.9% of, of, of every show I ever wrote for. And on Star Trek, it was different and for two different reasons. On Next Gen, I, I had a rare form of mononucleosis so I couldn't pull things together mentally like I normally could. So I sold that story and then I was just trying to work it. And I, I, I wasn't, I just wasn't firing all cylinders. And so finally I was diagnosed and I was like, okay, that's why it wasn't, you know, that wasn't losing my mind. But um, but then like, yeah, but that, that's how that one developed. But with Far Beyond Stars, it's a very different story and a rather funny one, which was I went in to pitch to Hans Beimler and I pitched that story, and Hans had been my, my boss on a show called Beyond Reality, and we we've worked on a number of shows together. And he really liked that story a lot, but he couldn't initially convince him to do it because it was so different. And finally, it took him a solid year. To convince them, and by that time, so I get a call, and I'm, I'm, by that time, I'm producing sliders. And he calls and he says, "I have good news. We're buying. We're buying your story." And I said, "Oh, good timing, Hans, because I was writing two episodes of Sliders, and we oh, were really up against it in terms of production. And in fact, the only time I could have to even meet with the writing staff on DS9 was on my lunch break. So I drove over the hill from the Universal to Paramount, and we had lunch at Nicodels, which was a restaurant right next to Paramount, and it was the entire writing staff. It was Ira Bear, Ron Moore, Hans. Uh, it was um, I think Bradley Thompson and his partner." On the show at that point, my Brian Suddles might have been in that meeting. I mean, just an amazing writing staff. And um, my initial idea had been that the you you know one of the characters goes back to the 1950s and, as is as a science fiction writer. It was inspired by my friendship with Theodore Sturgeon because he, of course, wrote for the great pulp magazines during the 50s and uh, and was writing for a penny a word or five cents a word. And I really wanted to show where science fiction came from because you wouldn't have a Star Trek or a Star Wars or any of these things if not for those great writers like Heinlein and Asimov and Bradbury and Sturgeon writing in the 50s for the love of it but the story was initially considerably different because it was it was uh, Cisco's son because Cisco's son was an aspiring writer and, uh, and so I thought it would be natural for him to go back in time and be a writer and it, the shape of the thing was different but we started talking about it and we all agreed that it should be, should be Cisco then Cisco and uh, you know, not, not his son because he's the lead of the show it made more sense and we started talking about what the rationale would be that would get him back there and and so and this thing came together very quickly and everyone was very excited and, and we were all here. Huge fans of the Twilight Zone, they would all read the Twilight Zone companions. So the idea we actually were saying, you know, let's make it like a Twilight Zone episode. Let's make it, you know, very much in that, you know, see, have that feel. And and also, Ira knew that this was going to be a very major major episode. So we said, okay, let's have Avery, Avery directed because that'll be a great idea as well. And and also, she said, let's have it for sweeps week, uh, which is when they set their ad rating. They, they they bring out your your top episodes to set the the advertising you know rate, and you're trying to get the largest viewership. But I knew that that was going to be a challenge for me because that was. A very tight time frame. So that weekend, I went home and I outlined the story. And I, Harlan Ellison had done this, this recording, reminiscing his this cassette, uh, an hour talk, reminiscing about writing during that period. And he had actually talked about. You'd go in and you'd see the cover illustration. So that gave me the idea for okay, there's a cover and it shows a 1950s version of the station, mm-hmm. and, he, and he's writing toward that. But the idea is he's. You know, he's, he's trying We had the idea that it was a black writer writing under a white pseudonym, and that it would be he's writing a, a lie where the future is all white, and he has to write the truth of his life. And during the day, he, you know he's writing, thing out with these white writers, science fiction writers at home. And he goes home to Harlem and they're saying, why are you writing this lie? And why are we? Why don't we exist in this future that you're writing about? And it was about what you know, writing your truth. And I found that very important. And I was very excited by this story. And I saw that it was sort of Star Trek. It was going to be one of the classic episodes. I knew that, even at the outline stage. And I actually even called Harlan. You know, Harlan wrote City on the Edge of Forever. And he's one of the great science fiction writers. And we talked about that era. And, we, and there was a, a black writer who wrote under a white pseudonym. And Harlan, Harlan told me about this guy and, and the, the how it twisted up this guy's soul to do that. And so, so I it was really, you know... You know, reaching into a lot of the authentic past of the genre. And, and also one of my teachers at Claring had been, uh, Samuel R. Delaney, who was African American. So I was very aware of the, of, of African American writers working in the genre. And so, so I wrote the outline and it was a terrific outline. Then Hans called me and said, well, you know, he and, he and I were going to do the script. And that was very unusual because when you're at the level that we were at, you don't, you don't get caught off the story. You, 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 write the script. It's simply, it's simply how it's done. So, and, and, and Hans said, it's just because we're going to want to sweep weekend and we're going to put it in the production immediately. And he knew I was a producer on sliders. So I called Ira because I really wanted to do that script and, and it was very alive in my mind. And I said, okay, Ira, I really want to do this script. And, but I was up against it because I was running two episodes of sliders back to back. And again, our, tight, our production time frame was very, very tight. And Ira said, if you quit your job, I'll let you write the script. And I actually considered it. <laughs> I actually considered it. And then I just thought, I can't do that. I can't leave the guys on sliders in the, in the lurch. I just can't do that. I, I you know, And I love sliders. So I, I had to say, no, I can't do it. And so... Hans and Ira wrote the script for my outline, and it was a terrific script. And they put an enormous amount of care into that episode. It was gorgeous. The way they recreated the New York streets with buses from the 50s and, and nuns and Hasidic Jews and, and, and newsstands. And, I'm, oh, my God, it was gorgeous. And, uh, but, the, but, the, but the capital of all of this is that, that there was one week where two studios were simultaneously shooting my work. So they were shooting slide Cage at Universal and, and Far Beyond the Stars at, at Paramount. And I took, I took a photo of myself of both casts the same day with me in the same clothes. Wow. And, and so I, I drove over the hill to uh, Paramount, and I was on the set, and it was on that set uh, that was the magazine bullpen, you know, with everyone, all of them dressed in, in, as 1950s writers. And so, so there's doing the take, and then Avery Brooks says, cut, and he says, everyone break for lunch. And he's kind of looking at me while, while he's directing, and I walk up to him in the break, and I say, hi, Mr. Brooks, I'm Mark Zickrey. I came up with this story. And he says, everybody, everybody, stop. And they all stop, and he puts his ra- arm around me, and he says, say to them what you just said to me and I said I came up with this story and he said he came up with this story and they all applauded me (laughs) so so that was my great my great deep space nine moment. And and I and I have the photo of, of myself with the cast. But it's funny because, you know, instead of them all being in makeup, they're just dressed like regular people in yeah. suits. So it's actually it's actually one of the most boring photos you could imagine. it just looks like I'm in some office with these very, very, you know, conservatively dressed people and then they signed they gave me the one of the magazine covers that they had done up for the episode and the entire cast signed it to me. So that was that was quite wonderful.
1: When we continue our conversation with Mark Scott Zekri. I will show my age by referencing an old Mickey Rooney movie, and we'll find out how Mark convinced a member of the original Star Trek cast to step onto the bridge of the Enterprise one last time. I'm Jim Yelton, and you're listening to Geek Universe. This episode of the show is sponsored in part by Ace Designs Media. With hundreds of web design projects under their belt and over 200 happy customers, the Ace Designs Media team knows how to build beautiful, interactive websites, and they can help with yours, too. Whether your business needs a site that will simply wow your customers or you need to add advanced features like e-commerce or blogs, their affordable prices mean that there is no longer any reason to say no to a high-quality, engaging website. So say yes and take the first step towards a new dynamic web presence for your business and visit the Ace website at Ace Designs media Media.com. That's AceDesignsMedia.com.
0: You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com 30 Minutes of Geek.
1: This week's show is sponsored in part by GeekArmory.com. This is one of the coolest places on the interwebs for everything nerdy and geeky. They've got t-shirts, toys, gadget, apparel, and knickknacks from Star Wars, DC Comics, Harry Potter, the X-Men, and and much, much more. It's holiday shopping season, and there's no better place to find something awesome for that special geek in your life. It's the favorite place to shop for the well-armed nerd. It's Geek Armory on the net at geekarmory.com. That's geekarmory.com. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm Jim Yelton. And our guest this week is Mark Scott Zekry, veteran genre writer and the writer-director of the first fan-created dramatic presentation to be nominated for both a Hugo Award and a Nebula Award. Let's find out what went into creating this groundbreaking production that inspired Joss Whedon to put Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog on the internet. A couple of years ago, I i am looking around on the internet and I find these people that are doing new episodes of Star Trek. And it's yes. Star Trek New Voyages and I watched the first couple of them and I'm like, you know, this is really cool. It's kind of like an Andy Hardy, let's just get the kids together and go out into the barn and, <laughs> and put on a show. But the sets were really cool and the costumes were right and it had that feel of the original series. And then I see that they're doing this episode called World Enough in Time and it's going to have George Takai in it. And mm-hmm. it's written and directed by Mark Zekri And I was like, I've heard of that name. I know that's the guy that did Far Beyond the Stars. I need to watch this episode. And then y- you don't know this because you have no idea who I am, but you came to St. Louis with World Enough in Time and and did a screening of it at the Archon convention. Mm -hmm. And I had to pull people into the room because I was like, you have to come see this episode of Mm -hmm. this web series. It's really cool. And they're like, but isn't it just a bunch of people like doing a a fan version of Star Trek? And I said, yeah, but they've got real people doing it. I mean, it's like real Mm -hmm. professional people and the effects are awesome. And I said, come watch this episode. So I dragged like three or four people in. And when we walked out afterwards, they were like, this is genius. Like, I can't believe mm-hmm. that people are doing this. How did you get involved in new voyages?
2: Well, that's, yeah, it's quite a it's quite story. You know, when I, when I started in TV, you know, you, you shot 5mm, millimeters, 16mm, millimeters, edited on a moviola, yeah. and, uh, and the only way to get, you know, worked out to millions of people was a network. You know, you, you know when, I was, when I was a kid, there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and, and NBC, and maybe PBS, and that was it. But then the internet started to um, become prevalent. And I was on a panel, a Star Trek panel. They had a one-day convention at UCLA, and the panel had people from all the different iterations of Star Trek. And Walter Koenig was on the panel. And someone asked a question from the audience, which was, what's the future of Star Trek? And this is before JJ had said he was going to do the Star Trek movie, and this was just as Enterprise was winding down, and people had had very mixed feelings about Enterprise. And Walter said something that was so peculiar that I actually afterwards sat down with him for an hour and said, "Tell me all about this." I and mean, what he mentioned was that a group of fans in, in, in upstate New York had built replicas of the entire of the of, of all the original Star Trek sets, and they were making their own episodes online, and they were getting a larger audience online than was watching Enterprise on UPN. And I said, that's amazing. He He was about to go shoot an episode playing Chekhov, and the episode was written by Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana, who had written and story edited the original Star Trek. And I said, well, I've got to check this out. So that night I went and I watched one of their episodes, and it was a sequel to... The Doomsday Machine, which had originally been written by Norman Spinrad. And, and the sets were great, the costumes were great, and the effects were terrific. The effects were actually being done by the same person who was doing the effects for uh, Enterprise, he, uh, Doug Drexler. He had come up through Next Gen and, and DS9 and, and he was a real guy. He was an Oscar and an Emmy winner. And I was really amazed by it. And they were shooting mini-DV, so it wasn't of a professional quality. It was not bad. but it, and, and the acting was kind of like, like as you say, fans putting on a show. It wasn't... But they had a couple of guest stars from the original Trek. They had William Wyndham and Malachi Throne and Barbara Luna who had all been on the original Star Trek and they were of course terrific and William Wyndham was reprising the role of Deckard uh, that he played on the the Doomfade machine. So I thought this is interesting and I immediately saw possibility. I saw how I could take that and I could elevate it to a much higher level and one of the actors I'd always wanted to work with was George Decay. I sort of have a list of actors I want to work with, and, and it may take years for me to work with them. And um and you know, and, and so but George was definitely on my list, George Decay. So decades before, in 1976, they were going to do Star Trek back as a TV show. It was called Star Trek Phase 2, and Paramount was. And they got all of the actors together except for uh, Nimoy. Nimoy was on the outs with him. him Roddenberry were feuding because of a lawsuit relating to uh, merchandising. And so they got everyone else t- together, and they created a new Vulcan named Zahn. And uh, and they spent a year developing it, building sets and buying scripts and spending millions of dollars. And then Star Wars came out. And they made the Star Trek movies instead of the show, so the show never got made. But during that time, I friend Michael Reeves, he pitched the Sulu story where Sulu gets marooned on an alien planet with 30 years and, and the week of an eye on the Enterprise, and he raises a family and so forth. And it was a very different story from what we ultimately did, but I loved that story and I remembered it. So when I saw what these guys were doing with Star Trek New Voyages, I called Michael, who was a dear friend, and we'd written together on and off um, over the years, but primarily written solo. And uh, Michael was also an Amy Litter from Batman, the animated series. And I said, uh, hey, you want to write that Sulu story with and he said, Sure. So I called the guys in upstate New York and I said, um, Michael and I work for Next Gen. We'd be very interested in, in doing this and, and I'd like to direct it. And said so I'd always wanted to direct. And every TV show I'd ever been on, I said, I, I would say to my showrunner boss, I would say, I want to direct. And they would always say, Next year, next year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, but I said, I'd like to direct this, but I want to shoot um, high def. I don't want to shoot mini DVD. And I said, well, if you can get the cameras, sure. We'll, we're game. So but I knew I wouldn't do it without George Takei. If it wasn't George, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it because then it wouldn't be kosher. It wouldn't be real. And um, so I, I met George Takei years earlier when I interviewed him for The Twilight Zone Companion because he was in one of the episodes, uh, an episode called The Encounter. So I contacted George and I went to his house and I typed up a three-page outline and I changed the story significantly because since Michael had pitched that story to phase two, they were going to make that story back in the 70s. Since then, Next Gen had done The Inner Light, an episode where Picard finds stuff on the alien planet and raises a family and grows old and then finds it back back in the enterprise and it's just a wink of an eye. And it had a different reason for that happening, but for me it was too similar. Because in, in, Michael's original story, we tracked... Sulu over those 30 years he as he's raising a family and then he comes back to the Enterprise and he, he he's just young again because it's only been an instant and he has to save the ship but he forgets his family and so his family are there on that planet but he doesn't remember them and it was kind of a bit of a sweet ending. But I didn't want to do that I, I, so I changed it to where the entire thing is on the Enterprise and Sulu's 30 years older and his daughter comes back with him but she can only be brought back halfway and he's had his whole life that we only hear about and, and learn about and it's about the daughter and his relationship and, and moment of decision they have to come to that's heartbreaking. And And so I typed up that storyline in three pages and I went to George's house and I sat in the dining room with him and I said, you're a brilliant actor, but you never got the Sulu episode you deserved. And this is it. And I need you to read this three pages right here and now and tell me if you'll do it. And he read it right there and then, and he said, I'm in. And so I spent six months building a production team with a lot of my department heads from here in Hollywood, people I'd worked with, people I knew who were solid, solid, solid. And so we spent six months prepping, and Michael and I wrote the script, and it was just a terrific script. I knew it was going to be great, just like I knew with Far Beyond the Stars that it was going to be unforgettable. And so then we went to upstate New York, and we shot nine days in upstate New York with George Takei and, and the, uh, the cast. And, and we'd also, months before, gone up to upstate New York, my wife and I, who was an acting coach and a director and a writer in her, whole, her own right, and um, we worked with the actors to see what their acting skills were. I was guiding the script toward their acting chops. And some of them, Jeff Quinn, who played Spock, was such a wonderful actor, and the actress who played Uhura was also wonderful. And, 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 and James Callis, who played Kirk, he could be um, worked with to, to deliver a really strong performance. You know, he, And so it was mainly getting him to not be just doing an in the of Shatner, but really be doing a, an actor's performance. And right. we were able to get him to that point. Everyone was working very hard, everyone was very committed. So then we also built the Excelsior sets here, Sulu Ship, because there's a wraparound story with the Excelsior. Uh, two days here in L.A., and then one day in Florida with the Dave School, the effects team. And then it was a solid year of post-production. There were 700 effects shots. I was working with an editor for months to refine the, the thing. And I had, I had final cut. Contractually I had final cut. So no one could touch a frame. Uh, it was entirely my baby. And uh, I brought every skill to it that I'd spent. In all the shows I'd been on, Sliders, all the other shows I'd been on, uh, it, I was bringing my A-game, just like I did the everything I, I do. And um, and I was hugely proud of it. And when I was on set shooting in upstate New York uh, on the Star Trek set, I said, to George Decay, I said, a year from now we're going to be at the World Science Station Convention in Japan showing this to an audience of thousands and uh, then we'll answer questions. I'll be answering the questions in English. We'll be answering them in Japanese because he's fluent in Japanese. And I said then uh, a year after that we'll be nominated for the Hugo and that's exactly what happened. We were nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula and no independent project had ever been nominated for either award. I was up against Pan's Labyrinth and Doctor Who and Battlestar Galactica and ironically because I was nominated opposite Pan's Labyrinth Guillermo del Toro's publisher came to me and asked if I wanted to write a book with Guillermo and I just wrote a book called Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, but but I, I'm hugely proud of World Myth time I'm just thrilled that I got to do that. It was uh, George Takei was a, a phenomenal actor, and I I cast an actress named Christina Moses to play his daughter, and she's the best actress i ever worked with. It's just it's just stunning, amazing.
1: It, it's an amazing piece of work, and and you definitely should be proud of it. I, I was so thrilled when i watched it because i thought this is where things are going and this is the direction things are going and i actually being in the the self-publishing small press field myself at the time that you came out with world enough in time we were having a struggle with you know several conventions and and different things where trying to fight for recognition for people that are doing more independent stuff and when you guys got nominated for the hugo and the nebula it was like the roof went off some yeah. of these places, and, and I said, "See, independent people are doing things that are of high quality and need to be recognized." And I was just so happy that you got nominated. And, and I know you had to have felt the same way. Like it doesn't even matter yeah. if we win; just the fact that we got nominated was enough.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny about that. And I also went to the Science Fiction Lives of America. I screened World Nothing Time at the Nebula Banquet, and so that that led to the Nebula nomination because people had to see. That's why I was going to many conventions and showing World Nothing Time because people had to see what we were capable of. Because I think you know. The real sea change came with digital cameras and editing on a PC or a Mac and the Internet, because the Internet, you could reach millions of people. I mean, more than enough in time was seen by millions of people around the world. We made the front page of the LA Times and the New York Times. I, I, my my whole philosophy was it's not about the studios and the network saying what we can, can or cannot see. It's about the quality of the work and the quality of heart that we bring to the work.
1: Our guest this week is Mark Scott Zekri. And if you're interested in creating your own genre projects, there has never been a better time for creators to get their work out to the masses. The internet's a game changer for us creative types, and we're going to talk to Mark about how he continues to blaze trails with his new series, Space Command. I'm Jim Yelton, and you're listening to Geek Universe popfunko.com is the best place on the web to shop for those awesome Funko Pop vinyl figures. Specializing in rare and hard to find figures popfunko.com carries limited editions metallics glow in the darks autographed chase and retired pops. All your favorite characters from The Walking Dead Ghostbusters Game of Thrones The Big Lebowski and many many more can be found here too. They even have collector sets and a bargain bin featuring pop figures for $10 or less. It's my first stop when looking for Funko figures and now it can be yours too. That's popfunko.com.
0: You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at facebookcom 30minutesofgeek.
1: Hey gang, this week's show is sponsored by the Now Write Writing Guide series from Tarcher Penguin. Now Write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror is the latest book in the popular Now Write series, and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre. Are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest, or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ransby Campbell, John Skip, Joe R. Lansdale, David Brin, Vonda McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror is a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. You know, I always tell everybody when I do a workshop or I teach one of my screenwriting classes that when I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing. And you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods. Like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to jumpstart your writing. So make sure to check it out. It's now write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It's available in most Barnes & Noble stores on Amazon.com and directly from their website at NowWrite.net. We appreciate all of you tuning in to Geek Universe each and every week. Our guest this week is Mark Scott Zekri. He's written for print, animated shows, genre television like Friday the 13th, The Series, and Sliders, as well as being the driving force behind some exciting productions on the internet. Surprisingly, it was a failed Ray Bradbury project that led Mark to have a career epiphany.
2: Well, you know, World Enough and Time was really the proof of concept, you know, because it's one thing for me to say that I can write, you know, an a sort of, of sliders and we have a budget of, you know, $1.3 million or $1.5 million and we can pull it off, you know, but it's something for me to say, okay, for a, for a few hundred thousand dollars, I can make something that will that'll be a, a, of a similar quality to what the networks and the studios are doing. So World Enough in Time, because if it was made for under $100,000, you know, you can point to that and say, okay, I'm not talking through my hat. You know, There's here's the proof. So uh, the, the real uh, turning point, you know, was when I started all this topic stuff coming out of the studios and networks, and you know, Oblivion and Elysium and, and After Earth and, and Defiance and, and Battlestar Galactica. And I liked some of those. I think mean, Battlestar Galactica I liked very much. And uh, Oblivion I thought was very, very good. And Elysium was well intentioned too. But, but, the, but the hopeful vision of the future, the, the, the shows like Star Trek or Next Gen that could inspire people, where you'd say that, okay, the future is going to have challenges. That humanity can come together and we can be better than we've been. We can reach out to the stars. We can. I mean, the one thing that science fiction never predicted was that we would go to the moon and then stop. <laughs> so, you know, it was right. like holy cow. You know, there, there was always the assumption we would continue on. We would we would colonize Mars. We would we would develop faster than light drive. We would go out to the stars as a race. And I wanted to promulgate that. I wanted to encourage that. And I want, I thought that was a vision worth promoting. And the turning point was really when, you know, as I mentioned, Ray Bradbury was my mentor uh, for the last 10 years of his life. I'd go over to his house and we'd just hang out every every month. I'd go there and we just talk. It was great. And I'm a huge fan of the Martian Chronicles. I discovered that Ray had written 22 Mars stories that weren't in the Martian Chronicles but followed the same structure. And so I said, well, listen, could I shape these as, a, as an eight-hour miniseries and take them out and set up the miniseries? And then I reached out to my friend Michael Minkin, who was one of the great directors on that. Star Galactica, and I said, will you come aboard? We both, pro- we would executive produce this, and I'd write it, and, and you'd direct it, and off we go. And he said, Sure. And we took it out and we could not sell it. And when something that wonderful doesn't get made and it should get made, I thought, well, I'm done. I don't need to be. I don't need the networks or the studios to tell me anymore what I can and not do. So then I came up with the idea for Space Command. And uh, I, was, I mentor a lot of young people in Hollywood. I run a roundtable uh, that, that has thousands of members. And I've been running that for 21 years where we meet each week and we just kind of talk. And, and, I, and I guide p- young people and help them. And, and I was about Kickstarter. And, and I thought, well, you know, I've never raised money but let's see if I can. And I set a very modest target, $75,000. I, I had a friend who who made low-budget science fiction movies, and he and he would basically rent a warehouse and converted to a soundstage, and was making movies for about fifty thousand dollars. Space going films, and I said to him, "Okay, listen, why don't why don't you know we'll we we'll try this campaign, and we'll we'll have an idea for budgeting for about fifty thousand dollars, and if this doesn't work, I'll put in twenty-five, you put in twenty-five, and we'll make a movie." He said, "Great," and because because Kickstarter takes ten percent off the top, and then you also have to fulfill on various things you promised, items like books and you know DVDs and so forth. So we put aside that money, and so we tried to ra- try to raise seventy-five thousand in two months, and if, and we'd see if it worked or if it didn't work, and we raised $75,000 in three days, and we kept going, and we raised $221,000, and that was enough seed money to start my um, my studio, but but initially, it was just going to be one Space Command film, but as during that two months, I was doing media interviews every single day and talking to the fans, and, and as I started talking about Space Command, the story just grew and grew and grew, and it became two films, and then three films, and four, and then five, and then finally six. Start with because it became this huge universe and it's basically three families. It's five generations of three families over 150 years as we go out in space, colonize the solar system, and jump to the stars. And uh, and we just finished shooting the first film and I've written the first four and in fact the third one I wrote with Michael Lee's who I wrote World of Life and Time with and I've I've started writing the fifth and I've actually outlined the sixth as well. So it's this wonderful storyline and I'm using all these actors I've worked with on on Star Trek and Babylon 5. So I've, you know as I mentioned the cast in the first film is Bill oh, well, Mummy and Mira Frowin from Babylon. 5, Boba Carter from Star Trek Voyager, Doug Jones from Pan's Labyrinth and Falling Skies and The Strain and Hellboy, and Mike Harney, who's a, a new friend, from he stars in Orange is the New Black, and Bruce and, uh, Dock's came in for one day to play a general, and, uh, and then Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips and, uh, um, um, you know, uh, many other actors uh, from, from Trek and from Battlestar Galactica, I've been talking to Jamie Bamber and Edward James Olmos and many of the actors from shows and movies that I love, James Kong, you know, they're not attached officially yet. But they're actors that I very much want to work with, and because it's my own studio, I can do that. And uh, I've and after the Kickstarter campaign, I started selling investment shares. I would sell shares for seventy-five hundred bucks. I sold thirty-five shares to the fan base, to the people want to see this get made, and and I started selling shares in the second film, and those have started selling. And so my basically, the audience can underwrite these films, and I and I'm, I'm going to the studios and the networks and the internet platforms for distribution and marketing because that takes millions of dollars, and I really want this to punch through where it becomes like Star Wars or Star Trek. Star Galactica, You know, and marketing can reach out to more broadly than I can. But, but I don't need the studios and networks anymore to tell me what I can or cannot write and make. And uh, I, I tr- I've always trusted, trusted the audience much more than the executives. Because the executives, at the end of the day, have a, a commercial responsibility. They have they're they're responsible for their corporate masters. I mean, it's, and it's not wrong. I mean, they're drawing a paycheck, and it's they're not there to create art. They're to, they're they're there to make a profit for the company. That's not wrong. But that's not why I'm doing what I do and that's not why the audience is watching the shows. The audience doesn't care. Like if you watch Blade Runner, you don't care if it was a flop when it first came out. You care that it's a brilliant movie. (laughs) Right. It's it's not it's not about the dollar, it's about whether it's it's wonderful. You know, we all love science fiction because we, we see things that move us tremendously. And whether it's Blade Runner or or 2001, or Star Trek, or Twilight Zone, or any of the shows, they speak to our hearts. And they also also fire our imagination. Ray Bradbury told me that when he was a kid, he read A Princess of Mars, and he would walk out at night behind the house, and he would put his arms up to to the stars, and he would say, Mars, take me home. You know, and and, and all of us who love science fiction, we have that same spirit. Space calls to us. You know, uh, the world of the imagination speaks to us. And we know that mankind is meant for something bigger than just the, the tiny lives that the the, the smaller people would would say that we're about. It's not about just punching a, a time card and fighting wars. You know, we're a world at war, but we don't have to be. I think when man went to the moon, you know, we forget that was during the Vietnam War. There were terrible things happening. But also the, the moon landing, the politicians might have done it for, for political gain, but that's not why the entire human race was enthralled by it. I mean, we were enthralled by it because it was saying we can be more than just an animal in the jungle. We are not where we come from. We are where we are going to, and we are capable of aspiring to something far greater. Hey,
1: do you miss the days of Space Invaders and Pac-Man? Well, Gazapper Games has brought those times back for your Android phone with their latest game, Solar Rush. Fast reflexes and strong nerves are needed as you dash about collecting solar cells to power your ship. With the firebirds constantly on your tail, can you advance through the challenging levels? Solar Rush is a great way to turn your Android phone into a pocket-sized arcade without needing all the tokens. And if you like Solar Rush, try out other Gazapper games like Galaxy Storm and Invaders from Androidia. All three are available from Google Play, or you can get more information at Gazapper.com. Well, it's that time once again. It's time for us to make like a tree and get out of here. Thanks to Mark Scott Zekri for giving us so much insight into writing genre television and where the future of creativity is leading all of us. And a very special thanks to Lori Mayfly, the driving force behind... The Now Write Writer's Guide series, one of our sponsors on the show, and she did a great job helping us arrange that interview with Mark for this week. Also, remember that if you like geek comedy, trivia, games, prizes, and just generally hanging out with an audience full of your fellow geeks, you might be in luck because we're bringing Geek Universe Live on tour. Do you think you can beat me and take the crown of Trivia Thunderdome champion? Well, go to midnight-entertainment.com for more information and locations for our Geek Universe Live events that are coming up this fall. For our robotic announcer, Rachel, I'm Jim Yelton saying the next time you play three-dimensional chess with a seven-foot-tall alien, just remember, let the Wookiee win.
0: You've been listening to another exciting episode of Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Find out more about the Geek Universe including how to buy Jim's book, the exciting sci-fi adventure The Swindlers of Doom, along with our other Geek merchandise, information about our live shows, our full archive of previous episodes, our bonus features podcasts, blogs, and more at midnight-entertainment.com. You can also find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30minutesofgeek or on Twitter using the Twitter handle at 30minutesofgeek. Geek Universe with Jim Yelton is a production of Midnight Entertainment LLC and is a proud part of the GLN Radio Network. This episode is copyright 2015. All rights reserved.
1: Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. Read a book.